Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark. Of course, when I finished the Gospel of Mark, I had already finished uh, the whole book. I am going back and just looking, gleaning from it some of the characteristics that are important for all disciples of Jesus Christ, and that's what we're looking at. There's actually eight uh, characteristics that emerge under the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit in conformity to the Word of God. And of course, as the Lord is developing our character uh, as a disciple, he's doing that so we would be able to serve with a developing Christ-like attitude, and of course, attitudes and behaviors that are consistent with the Spirit of God definitely sanctifying us and making us more like, uh, more into the image of Christ. Of course, all the original disciples had to learn these characteristics. Uh, They can't be bypassed, in other words. Uh, So all the followers of Christ will be found at different levels of their spiritual growth, developing a Christ-likeness in which they uh, did not have before or had before, but is growing more deeply in that characteristic and more abiding in that characteristic. So all these characteristics, uh, the Holy Spirit is developing us always gives rise to a further, further godly attitudes and further godly behaviors. So last week we looked at the first one, which was the crowning characteristic, and that characteristic was uh, the first characteristic of authentic disciples is unconditional surrendering to God's will. Another way to say that is obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. All right, so that is the first thing that is one of the most important characteristics of uh, being a disciple is that you are someone who is willing and wanting to, not just not forced to, but wanting to obey the Lord in, in all that he communicates to us in the word of God. So this Lord's Day, I would like to look at, consider the second and third of the eight characteristics of authentic Christ-like disciples. And so the second one, uh, the second characteristic of authentic disciples is uncompromising faith in God. Now, if you look at Mark chapter 11, verse 22 and 20 to 24, in that section of scripture, the Lord challenges his Disciples, where he says in verse number 22, and Jesus answered, Mark eleven twenty-two. Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God. Now, did it mean that they didn't have faith in God at that point? I don't believe so. I believe what he was challenging them to is a deeper, more abiding, more consistent trust in the character of God. For he says in verse 23, truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted to him. So in other words, the Lord is trying to dispel, push out from our hearts, remaining doubt that we all have. We all came into the Christian life with remaining doubt. And so real faith is absent of doubt and fear. Real faith knows that the disciple's source of all power is God himself. So the the disciple's inner attitude is trusting God. Now, faith is not mere consent to a, a proposition about God as revealed in Jesus Christ, his son, It is the opposite of swelling pride or of self-trust. It is really humility before God, a readiness to 
conform to his will. It is a conviction that he cannot lie, nor does he fail at anything he does. It is a reliance on him in spite of our outward circumstances, no matter how trying they may be. According to Webster's Dictionary, faith is defined as the assent of the mind to the truth of what is declared by another. And then then resting on that person's authority and veracity uh, without other evidence. So that means for the Christian then, faith is believing that the promises of God are true simply because he says they are true. Because his character backs up everything that he promises to all uh, his children and that is contained in the word of God. If the Lord did not keep his promise, we would have to question his character. But because he does keep his promise, his promise is we must trust his character. So to examine the essence of faith, we must turn to Hebrews. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. That's that great chapter on, on faith. And I want you to notice in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1, the essence of biblical faith really has three things that are connected to it. The first thing is that a biblical faith accepts God's word. All right? Verse number 1 of Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. All right, now, so the first thing that comes out of that starting statement in chapter 11 of Hebrews is that, really, a biblical faith accepts God's word. But that also means this. We have to understand what a biblical faith is not. A biblical faith is not substanceless faith. There's a substance to our faith in Scripture. Like, you know, when people talk about a blind leap in the dark, that's what faith is. That's not faith at all. Our faith has great amount of substance to it. It has uh, content to it. We are not just believing in anything. We're believing in something, and we're believing in someone. And so that means that our faith has a foundation to it, and that foundation is a firm foundation. In fact, the King James Bible says this about that same verse. It says, now, instead of using assurance, it uses the word substance. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So viewed from this perspective, faith is something objective that in the here and now gives things hope for for a really a substantial reality which will unfold in God's appointed time. In other words, it gives us a confidence, a trust, and an assurance in what God says to be true. So faith is an assurance. Faith is a, as it says in the King James, is the substance, all right? It has something to it. It has consistency to it. It's like the psalmist who wrote this in Psalm 39, verse 6 through 9. It says, Surely every man walks about as a phantom. Surely they make an uproar for nothing. He amasses riches and does not know who will gather them. And now, Lord, for what do I wait? And this is what he says My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not a reproach of the foolish. I become mute. I do not open my mouth because it is you who have done it. See, he, that is an expression of trusting in the character of God, not in riches, not in circumstances, not in themselves, and not in even the turmoil they, that may be happening in one's life, not, not just losing it all because trouble has come into one's life, but 
trusting in the character of God. Now, here is something very important for adjusting your understanding of biblical faith. Biblical faith is that it is absolutely certain that what it, what it believes is true and what it expects or hopes for will come to pass. So biblical faith has a substance to it. Also, biblical faith, what it's not, it's not just the hope-so faith. You know, you talk to people and they say, well, you, you, you believe God's going to do this? And they'll say, well, I hope he, he does that. Well, that's not the kind of hope the Bible's talking about. Our passage includes uh, this all-important word, for faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So when hope is used as a verb, hope and faith are virtually synonymous. A noun, as a noun, hope refers to, actually directly to the promises of God. And if we just look at the promises of God right in the book of Hebrews, uh, here are some of the things that we are to hope for in Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 5, we're to hope for a world to come. All right? Is there going to be a world to come? Do you, have you seen the world to come? Do you, no, we haven't seen the world to come. All, what we're doing is we're trusting that there is a world to come. There's going to be a new heaven and new earth. Why? Because God says so. So, see, and that's what faith is. Faith is trusting in God and what he says is true. Also, the promise of eternal inheritance, it tells us in Hebrews 9.15, there is an eternal inheritance that is for all his saints. Do I have that inheritance yet? No. But how do I have it? I have it by faith. It's not by sight I have it. I have it by faith because I trust in God's character. Hebrews 10.37, there's going to be a second coming of Christ. How do I know that? Well, I know it because God says it, and I know it because what God says is true. And that becomes something that you and I need to definitely be putting our faith and trust in as we consider living for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now this morning, we're just considering this again. We're considering that this... um, This is something that we need in our life, to be trusting God, always trusting God for everything that he is doing uh, in our life. And so when we do that, then we know that our faith is growing as a disciple. It tells us in Scripture that he promises eternal salvation and rest. Are we going to have rest someday? Yes, he promises that. He He tells us in Hebrews 12, 28, there's going to be an unshakable kingdom. Is that going to take place? Yes, it's going to take place. So, as a verb, hope speaks of our response to God's promise. In other words, he offers us hope. That's the noun form. And we can have hope, the verb form, in him and in his guarantees. We can believe them with Absolute confidence. So hope here is not a hope-so hope. I hope it happens. That's just wishful thinking. A biblical hope looks forward with utter conviction and expectancy. It is not a hope mingled with uncertainty and doubt. Those who live in doubt are actually opposed to faith. Essentially, they are denying the hope of God and what is true. It was Charles Spurgeon who said it like this. I would recommend, he said, you either believe God up to the hilt or else not believe it at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. He said, be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the depths of divine revelation, a faith that paddles about the edges of the water is a poor faith at best. It is little better than a dry land faith. 
It's not good for much. See, this is the kind of faith we ought to have in God. Also, a biblical faith is not a faith focused on what is seen. I mentioned that already, but if you notice the passage in Hebrew 11.1, it's a conviction of things not seen. Remember, we're not living by sight right now. We're living by faith. That means there's going to be things that God tells us in the word of God that almost seem impossible that they would ever take place, but they are only possible because they're connected to the character of the unchanging God who cannot lie and must tell us the truth. So we see here that the scripture uses the word conviction in verse number one, the conviction of things. This is a, uh, some say this is a, a pr- an inward result of proving something, of believing something. Of course, it's translated here a conviction. See, faith does not focus in on the seen things of the world, but rather looks to the unseen promises of God. Our hope and our lives are to hope in the Lord. Hope is a result of faith. We have the conviction in regard to unseen, the unseen things, is, the fa- is really faith in its essence, that they exist in spite of me not seeing them. That's, that's the essence of a biblical disciple's faith, is I just believe God. Do that mean you have all the answers? No. Does, does that mean that you can answer all the questions? No. You, that's not what it means. It means that a disciple, whether they can answer all the questions, is someone who just simply trusts in the character of God. We are certain of the unseen things as if, they, if, as if we saw them. We are, we are certain that we will have resurrected bodies someday as if we do have resurrected bodies someday. We are certain as if we saw the second coming of Christ that he will come because we have it already by faith. There will be a final judgment. There will be a new heaven and earth. And so these are the unseen things that I I have by faith even though I don't see them. So we don't see these things, but we know for certain they are going to take place. In other words, we have a conviction in our heart that they will take place. Why? Because of the character of the one who told us about these things. Certainly, it's not always easy to trust God. Doubt, despair, fear continually work their way into our lives in different ways. Sometimes, and usually through our personal trials. That's when we, I think we question God the most, is when we feel like we're going through this trial. I prayed about it, Lord, but it doesn't seem like you're answering me. It doesn't seem like I'm connecting to you. And so at that particular point, we begin to doubt. But see, this is the very thing Jesus always constantly rebuked his disciples about, right? How many times in the Gospel of Mark did he say he rebuked them for so little faith? You guys, I'm saying that you, if you have faith in me, can move mountains. And you, the faith that you have, you put it in a little thimble, and then when you walk outside, you, you spill it. And that's all you have left. Instead of giving into doubt, we can stand on God's promises. Instead of succumbing to depression or worry, we can trust God himself. Instead of being disheveled by what we see around us, we can be grounded in what we can't see, but we know is absolutely true. See, that's, that's the essence of faith, to have that conviction when we read the word of God, that these things will take place. So that means that faith lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real 
and solid, though as yet unseen. It is like the firm and solid response Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego gave to King Nebuchadnezzar when they refused to serve his gods and bow down to the golden image that he set up. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king after he ordered them to bow to his gods. They said simply this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And then they said this, but even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, that is faith. Not only that is, they're trusting in the very character of God. If God decides to rescue me, then that's his will. But if he decides not to rescue me, that may be his will too. And I'm going to leave that up to him because I trust him. So that's a faith between life and death there, but that's a faith that has deep conviction in the word of God, knowing that I'm not going to bow down to idols because I serve the true and living God. I also, I I liked what uh, George Mueller, that old uh, man of the faith who understood God's promises and what it meant to live by faith, he said this, that the life lived by faith is a walk with God outside the gates of heaven. So that's what it is. We're, we're all kind of walking outside the gates of heaven. We're not there yet. We're heading there. That's our destiny. But we're walking outside the gates. So in other words, the essence of biblical faith, it rests solely on the eternal word of God and the character of God. A second thing about biblical faith is, is, is that it gains God's approval. And all disciples come to a place in their life where they want to live in a pleasing manner before the Lord, Don't, do they not? All right, that's part of, of living by faith is that we grow in faith and we want to please God in what we do, right? If you notice, it says in Hebrews chapter, two, verse, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 2, it says this, for by it the men of old gained approval. Men of old gained approval. So that means a biblical faith gains God's approval. Now, this is really the kind of faith that the ancients had that enabled them to endure through all kinds of difficult situations right to the end of their life. To live in this particular manner assumes that one is living with the knowledge that they know how to gain approval from God in whom they serve. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not hoping you hit the target. It's not a whimsical faith. No. Here are people who knew whom they were worshiping and knew how to please the one they were worshiping. What satisfaction there is to know that God is pleased with you. And we all want to live there. That is a very secure place to live. In your circumstances, you are not living to gain human approval, but you are discerning the activity of the invisible God in your present situation, whether in adversity or prosperity. You desire to do the will of God and to receive divine approval. In fact, if you look down at verse number 5 and 6, You see right there in Hebrews, it tells us, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. Verse number, took him up. It says, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Verse six, and here it is. Why was he pleasing to God? Why was he pleasing to God? Because he had faith. In God, verse number six, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, I, I observed along the way that when you sometimes witness to people, they have a hundred questions about the Bible. What about this? And what about that? And what about evolution? And what about the age of the earth? And what about this? And what about... And they go on and on and on. And you know why you can answer all their questions and they still have another 101 question, right? Well, you know what? They will never come to know the truth because all they'll never run out of questions. See, faith is I believe what God says about even salvation, how to be made right with God. I believe that. And in believing that, I am believing in who God is, in his character, in in the essence of his nature, and also I am believing, too, that he is a rewarder of those who do seek for him, who do desire to have him please with them. So you see that biblical faith is not a blind leap in the dark. It is immersed in the nature and character of God, in objective truth, in the historical reality of the word of God. That the people of God actually lived and died by faith. All you have to do is look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says, by faith, Abraham. By faith, verse 20, by faith, Isaac. Verse 22, by faith, Joseph. Verse 23, by faith, Moses. 31, by faith, Rahab. I mean, the whole chapter is, how did they please God? They please God by having faith. But it also tells us then, here in Scripture, that some of the things that they sought after, they didn't receive, but they had them by faith. See, they will receive it, but not yet. So it's our turn. It's our turn on earth to endure by faith, to believe the unseen, to trust God's promises, to wait and hope expectantly that our great God and Savior will bring all he has promised to an ultimate fulfillment. So the essence of biblical faith is that it is a faith which rests entirely on the character of God. And then there is a third thing about the essence of a biblical faith is this. A biblical faith recognizes God's power. It recognizes and it leans upon God's power. If you notice in verse number three of Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, a biblical faith has a spiritual perception that the universe can be seen. Actually, every day we walk outside, every time we look at the evening sky, what do we see out there? We see the stars, we see the planets, we see everything, and we... They're visible, we can see them with our eyes, but we don't know the source initially of the universe. In this sense, a biblical faith has a spiritual perception that the universe can be seen, but its origins cannot be seen. The believer knows that the origin of the universe is God himself. All right, But the point in Scripture is that It is really the power of God that put the universe there. Because when God spoke, he spoke creation into existence. It happened, right? It took place. We see the results. So a believer, someone who's growing in their faith, really has a faith also in the power of God. The sense of the passage would claim that God's word is an invisible power that produces visible results. It's just like when you share the gospel with somebody and you know they're they're dead in their sin, they're they're living a life of darkness, they're, uh, they're they love their sin, and you bring the gospel to them, and all of a sudden 
they believe the gospel and their whole life is changed. What, how did that take place? It wasn't your skill in articulating the gospel, even though you should have at least the points of the gospel to be able to do that. It was the power of God's word, the unseen power of God's word that produced results. See, that's what, we, that's what a biblical faith is, that we go outside and we see the universe and we realize that we also know the source of how the universe came into being, and that is God himself. See, that is the faith that we have, faith that is based on the character of God, the living God, the invisible God, the God who cannot lie. The scriptures speak of the formation of the universe at God's command. It was formed by the word of God and came into being by what cannot be seen. And what cannot be seen? The source of how it happened. In other words, God can't be seen. But the results of the power of his word can be seen. See, so now that means these three things are part of the essence of a biblical faith, the kind of faith that I and you should be growing in every single day of our lives to the point where we actually have such deep convictions about these things that nobody, nobody can cause us to doubt. See, that's the kind of people we ought to be. We, we really believe these things. We don't flounder in them. So then the second characteristic of an authentic disciple is an uncompromising faith in God, which flows right out to the third one. And here's the third characteristic of authentic disciples, an uncommon desire to pray to the Lord, an uncommon desire to to pray to the Lord. Now, if you take your Bibles and turn back to the Gospel of Mark, again, we're looking at Mark 11. And of course, if you want all the details around the Mark passages, you're going to have to go back and listen to those sermons, right? But I'm not, I'm not staying there. I'm going actually outside of Mark to substantiate some of the things about what, what Jesus was saying to his disciples, to, to know that it is a faith that, that transcends the Gospels into all the disciples' lives and those who wrote Scripture. So this third characteristic of authentic disciples is an uncommon desire to pray unto the Lord. If you notice in Mark 11, in verse 24, it says, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted to you. So the disciples' action of faith is prayer. In fact, faith and prayer are very closely linked. It's almost like hand and glove. You can't have one without the other. See, an increasing faith will cause me to what? Pray to the one I have faith in. See, that's what it does. So there's a necessary characteristic here of a disciple. A disciple bears the necessary characteristic of prayer. And also a disciple bears the necessary characteristic of forgiveness while they, when they pray. If you notice in verse number 25, it says, whenever you stand praying, forgive. If any of you have anything against anyone so that your father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. So we see that this prayer and then the disciples' attitude of, of having a forgiving attitude that's linked with actual prayer that God hears. So not to have a forgiving attitude in your heart when you pray is almost like saying, I don't believe God. I'm not going to be forgiving to this person, so God doesn't listen. hear your prayer. So see, forgiving power cannot flow into our lives if we refuse to forgive others. We ought to 
forgive because God has forgiven us. That, that is the very foundation of why we forgive anybody that would do anything against us. No matter how severe it may be, it, it, there must be this characteristic of forgiving. Now imagine that some king were to give you a card with his personal phone number on it and say, dear friend, you know that I love you. You know that I care for you. If I can ever be of help, don't hesitate to call. I will see that the call is put right through, and of course, whatever I can do to meet your need, I will. What do you think you would do with a card that was given to you by a king? You think you would throw it away if he gave you that promise with it? No, hardly. You wouldn't do that. You would treasure it as something wonderful. Well, we do have such a card, in the sense, given to us from God not only in, in the scripture itself, but in Jeremiah, it, he tells his people, call unto me and I will answer you and will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. But how does it start? It starts with the call. Christians are to call unto the living God and he says, I will answer you. See, so God is available. You're not going to get a busy signal. There's no answering machines. You will never hear from God that he will not answer you. He will. And thank God that we Christians have a Savior who can hear all our prayers, understand every one of them, and is compassionate and eager to actually hear them and answer them. What a privilege that is. But it is a privilege that I have observed Uh, in my own life and in the life of believers that we take far too lightly and we take for granted of it and sometimes we even seldom use it. Our prayers are filled with generalities and not specifics. Our prayers are not impossible prayers that only God can do. They're very safe prayers. And... uh, And yet, God wants us to pray unsafe prayers. He wants us to pray things that are impossible. And he also wants us to know that prayer has always been important to God. From the beginning of the Bible to the end of Revelation, you see examples of prayer. In fact, if you were to follow Jesus around, you would find that he prays all the time. For example, Luke records this Uh, this procedure of prayer where in Luke 5, he prayed for more healing the next day. In Luke 6, he had a major decision to pick disciples, and the Bible says he prayed all night for his disciples. In Luke 9, he prayed for food to be multiplied. In in Luke 9.28, he prayed earnestly right before facing the cross, where the Bible even records in Luke that he sweat great drops of blood while he was praying. And then in, in Luke 11, uh, chapter 11, verse number 1, he just prayed on a normal day. He prayed for just regular things. So see, prayer is important to the Lord. When we come to the Apostle Paul, is prayer important for him? Well, Paul wrote to the Thessalonian Christians and admonished them in the context of not quenching the Holy Spirit of God. He said this in Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18, it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So pray without interruption. Pray unceasingly. Pray consistently. The word used means to continually or repeatedly do that activity. And so what is the essence of prayer? Well, remember, by essence, I mean that which makes something what it is. By essence, I mean the fundamental nature of the thing or the essential quality of the thing. And of course, what is the essential quality of prayer in this passage in Thessalonians? that prayer is to be done all the time. Now, how can someone pray continually? 
That would be the question, right? Is the Lord asking us to do something that is in reality impossible? Well, I know from the word of God that if the Lord commands us to do something, then it is possible to put into practice all the time. It was uh, the commentator R.C. Lenski who said, ceaselessly does not mean that our regular custom of praying in the morning, the evening meals in church is not to be broken. It means that we are always to be fit and ready for an approach to God in worshipful praying. The heart, which is ever attuned to God, as being the, his child that turns to God on a continual basis to lay their prayers before them. So regular and continual prayer shows where one's priorities are, where one's concerns are, where one's passions are. It implores us really to remember prayer is always first and should always be regular all the time. And so what, what is prayer in its basic nature? Well, prayer is converse with God. It's communication of our soul with God. It's not in contemplation necessarily or meditation, but it is in a direct address. I am coming to the God in whom I know, and I am coming to him with certain requests. I'm coming to him to adore him. I am coming to him to confess sin. I am coming to him to be thankful about all the things that he's provided in my life. And I am also coming to him to pray for others, to supplications. I want to pray for my own needs, and I want to pray for the needs of others because each one of us needs each other's prayer. Prayer may be oral, it may be mental, it may be occasional, sometimes constant. It may be a sudden crying out or a formal or a planned prayer. There's many different types of prayers recorded in Scripture. But prayer does presuppose a belief in the personality of God, in his ability and willingness to hold communication with us. His personal control of all things is also in my mind when I am praying. And all his creatures and all, his, all the actions of his creatures are known to God. So not, not many would deny the, the, that prayer is important. If I asked any one of you at any one time, you think prayer is important, you would all say to me, yes, of course it's important. That's something all Christians ought to do. But practically, many are atheists when it comes to prayer. We think we should do it, but we don't seek God's face on normal days about everyday things. To ponder such really a short and direct imperative like Paul gives us here, pray without ceasing, then we also have to consider some uh, other observations that may come to mind concerning this particular practice. And these are some of the things that uh, when we think about prayer without ceasing, we must get get out of our minds the wrong notions concerning prayer. That prayer is not always audible or in... uh, words that could be heard. It's not always with a certain posture. It's not always at a particular time. It's not always in a particular place. Now, is prayer more acceptable and proper because it is done at a particular time and place or in a certain posture or with the use of the voice? I'd say no. And here is an area that distinguishes true Christianity and true discipleship from all other so-called religions. That scripture is easy, excuse me, scripture is actually abolishing the conformity when it comes to communing with the true and living God. See, it, it, it is easy for someone to conclude that if I do not pray with my voice, or in a certain posture, or at a particular time and place, then I did not pray. See, this is the kind of thinking that actually undermines the essence of prayer. 
that if prayer is to be done without ceasing, then many of the times you, you and I pray sometimes when we don't speak words, right? We're praying in our mind to God, but we know who we're praying to. We know why we're praying. We know that he hears us when we pray. If we come to him in the right manner, we know that as his children. So therefore, I don't have to have this structure of when and how to pray, even though public prayers are important. The gathering of God's people in prayer are all important. We should all be practicing them, but none of those constitute the essence of prayer, that it's to be done without ceasing. We also must stay away from the think, thinking about prayer in a superstitious fashion. Like prayer is like rubbing a genie's lantern. That is, you know, whatever I ask God, it, he's going to give me whatever I ask him in the sense uh, that if it's not within the will of God, that prayer may be withheld from you because we're ask, asking out of selfishness, out of wrong motive, and not out of the correct motive. So, The prayer called for here in Thessalonians is not so much the articulation of words as the posture of the heart. There it is right there. It's the posture of the heart. A continual prayer that is going on in my heart to God all day long. And it was interesting that Thomas Kelly explained this particular thing that goes on, and he said this, There's a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at one time. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs. But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we also may be in prayer and adoration and song and worship and a gentle repetitiveness of divine breathings. I found myself in this particular state often where no matter what's going on around me, uh, I'm in a kind of secret prayer to the Lord that no one, I'm not verbalizing, but I am in contact with God about events that are going on without getting on my knees, without, you know, raising my hands, without using my voice. And see, this is the essence of of a, a disciple, a disciple is, is someone who has faith in God, and he also has this now desire to want to commune with God on a regular basis. So here's the bottom line, the essence of this kind of prayer. We are to have, have a continuous inner channel of communication with God. That's what it is. Praying in this manner shows how dependent you are on the Lord, to get along in your daily life. I need God. I need the Lord every day of my life. Prayer is worship to the Lord, which he deserves. So there's an endless amount of people to pray for. Our prayer lists sometimes can be very long because it seems like we always have something to pray about. Continual prayer is God's will for every Christian, no exception. Matter of fact, that's what it says in our passage. It says, to pray without ceasing, this is the will of God. This is what ought to be taking place in your heart and your life. So if we do have a, this kind of thing going on as a believer, then it's going to have very little room for worry. It's going to have very little room for anxiety about life. You won't be running to the medicine cabinet for certain prescriptions to help you through the day. You will be communing with God, and he will enable you to make it through the day. Too much prescription drugs today that even Christians are taking to get through life. That does undermine God's power. That does undermine what God is doing in your life. It may even shortcut maturity in discipleship. I don't know. But all I know is that it seems like there's no trust there 
for God. Now, I'm not saying that all medication is wrong or that it shouldn't be taken from time to time. Uh, that's God's grace, too, giving those things to us. But I know this, that when it comes to continual prayer, I can do it. You can do it. If you're a busy person, you can do it. A student can do it. Young, young parents should do it. We all should do it. All can do it and all ought to do it if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. So true prayer is really a heart language. That's what it is. Whatever we seek with true hearts, he is found by us. See, God made heaven and earth. That means every place is hollow ground. Jonah cried out from the belly of a great fish, and the Lord heard him. And the great fish spewed him out to safe land. So there are certain specifics about prayer. And the first specific is this. Prayer is to be sincere. Prayers to be sincere. A sincerity first about sin. It was the psalmist who said this, I cried to him with my mouth, and he, he, was, extol- and he was extolled with my tongue. And then it says, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainty God has heard He has given heed to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God who has not turned away from my prayer nor his loving kindness from me. So, in other words, there is a faith in God's character. That faith brings along within it an understanding of who God is and how he responds to me. And it causes me to now approach the Lord with knowledge of who he is And then when I approach him, I approach him too to remove the hindrances in my life and many of the hindrances in in our lives come because of sin, right? So I confess my sin. If I regard that sin in my heart and don't want to confess it, it says the Lord will not hear me. It's not that he doesn't hear, it's that those are the things that prevent God from answering our prayers. Also, prayers should be sincere in our motive, It says also in Jeremiah 29, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. There it is, that sense of the whole heart engaged in in seeking after God. So there's a motive in prayer. Are you really seeking after God? And of course, God rejects insincere prayer where it says in Hosea, and they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they assemble themselves, they turn away from me. So they get to the point where they're so far away from God, they just moan on their beds and, and moaning on their beds. They crave for anything else but turning to God, repenting of sin, and calling upon him. And of course, Christ commended Nathaniel when, when Nathaniel came to Christ for having sincerity. For the Lord said to Nathaniel, Behold, an Israelite indeed with whom is no guile. Neither, in other words, he, was, he saw him under, praying under the tree and he saw no insincerity in Nathaniel. In other words, Nathaniel was seeking for God and God saw that sincerity. And of course, did he come? He was called by the Lord. So see, prayer is to be sincere. Secondly, prayer is to be affectionate. Affections and passions are engaged in prayer. When we read the Psalms, uh, like Psalm 84, verse 2, my soul longed and yearned for the courts of God. See, that's an affection for God, a love for wanting to have communion with God. See, because Christ is the only thing that really satisfies the soul. James calls it this, an effectual prayer of the righteous man accomplishes much. All right? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly 
that it would not rain and did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced fruit. But that was an earnest prayer. It was a prayer that had his affections connected to it. And, of course, those kind of prayers are effective. They produce results. And then, of course, prayer is also a pouring out of the heart. Prayer is an opening of the heart to God. God looks at the heart, and that is where prayer comes from. It doesn't just come from the mind in the sense these are logical things that I'm placing before the Lord. These are coming with a faith and a trust in God. And they also come with a desire to want God to connect with you and listen to your prayer. So it says in Psalm 62, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is refuge, a refuge for us. So the soul that prays really sees the emptiness in all things under heaven, that in God alone there is to be found rest and satisfaction for the soul. Truly, these prayers mentioned here reveal an emptying of self and a filling of God. But let me just close with this. There are some conditions in prayer when we pray, all right, that God has established actually his own conditions concerning what, when we do pray, that we ought to make sure conditions are met. What's the first condition? The first condition when uh, considering prayer, we must ask, right? James tells us, you lust, you do not have, you commit murder, you are envious and cannot obtain, you fight and quarrel, you do not have because you do not ask. Well, that's a simple one, isn't it? Why don't you have answers to your prayer? Well, you didn't ask God. One reason we don't have things we pray for is because we never pray for them. (laughs) That's simple. Second condition is when considering prayer, remove unbelief. Remove unbelief. Prayer is sometimes not answered because of unbelief. In fact, the passage I read in Mark 11, 24, Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them. See, there must be belief in our prayers. Third condition when considering prayer, make sure it's not half-hearted. We talk about a heartfelt prayer. Many prayers are not answered because they are prayed half-heartedly. Our prayers are to be fervent. It was Paul who wrote in Romans, I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. So there's this this whole striving and wholeheartedness that goes into our prayers. The fourth condition when considering prayer, make sure you're really forgiving others. I mentioned that when I started out. So prayers are not answered because sometimes we have unforgiving spirits. Again, in Mark eleven twenty five. Whenever you are, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will forgive you your transgressions. All right, that's pretty clear. The Bible sp- specifies if you have animosity against anyone, you need to forgive them, or else forget about praying. A fifth condition when considering prayer: pray to glorify God. Pray to glorify God. Prayer is not answered when we don't pray with God's glory in mind. We always want God to be manifested and exalted in our life. And so that's part of our prayer. Like it says in uh, Matthew 6, where he says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard by their many words. Pray then, it says in this way, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So even in that prayer, we we have the sense that prayer is to be, the result of that is to bring glory to God. A sixth condition is when considering prayer, don't give up. Don't stop praying. Our prayers may not be answered because they're not consistent. They're not persistent. Be persistent in your prayers. And just like it says in Luke, where it gives the story of one who came to a man at night and he ran out of provisions, somebody visited him, and he went to the man and says, no, listen, my doors are shut, my lights are off, I'm in bed, my family's in bed, I'm not giving it to you. I'm not giving you the provisions. And then it says this, I will tell you that even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because he of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Whoever, for everyone who asks receives, and who seeks finds, and him, to him who knocks, it will be opened. See, be persistent in your prayers. Don't give up. Don't say, it doesn't work. I tried that. And then the last condition when considering a prayer. Pray in Jesus' name. If you're going to be praying, you do not have access to the Father unless you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So the reason your prayers are not answered could be that you're not a believer. John 16 tells us, Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name, and you will receive so that your joy may be full. So, in other words, it does matter whether God, whether or not God is your Father, Remember, before you became a Christian, your father was the devil. Yes? If the devil's your father, go ask him. Apart from the family of God, when you're a part of the family of God, you can enter into the family as you repent of your sins and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you've done that, then you are on praying ground. If you haven't done that, the first prayer that you should pray is pray to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. So the Holy Spirit must reveal to a sinner that they're sinful and in a stateful condition before God. And so when that person senses their conviction of their sins and they run to Jesus Christ for mercy and salvation, they confess their sin to him, then they are placed in a, now they're placed in a place of a grace which God can exercise only through his son. They flee from the curse of the law, and now they're on praying ground. Now they can pray as they meet the conditions for prayer. So if you're part of God's family, I urge you to become men and women and boys and girls of faith and prayer. Learn to walk in the Spirit to lift up your hearts continually to God in prayer all day long. Practice the presence of God by practicing prayer. So if you're meeting the conditions which enable you to pray, then pray. I pray that the Lord would grant that to us, to make us people of real, genuine prayer, and that he would answer us. And we would pray and tell of, his, of the great things that he showed to us and things we did not know, but because of our growth in Christ, now we do know. So those are the kind of things that God wants in the disciple. The first would be the unconditional surrendering to God's will. The second characteristic, an uncompromising faith in God. And the third, an uncommon desire to pray to the true and living God.
So I pray that you would see these characteristics emerging in your daily experience as you follow Christ as a disciple. They, They must be there. They must be there. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word of God. I pray, Lord, that you would continually impress upon our minds the important aspects revealed in Scripture about your character. So, Lord, our faith would grow and our prayer life would become more regular and intense and earnest that we would actually be people who experience a life that knows what continual prayer is, that we are in communion with you, Lord, all day long. From the day morning we get up to when we, our heads hit the pillow, I pray that would be a characteristic in our life that would become more evident and more persistent and more regular than ever before. So, Lord, enable us to to see these things in ourselves and others. And I pray in doing so, you would make healthy, strong disciples that know how to live for you. In Christ's name, amen.